Our text this morning is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is God's word for us today. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw, them, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your command, for your authority, for your commission, for your comfort here. We ask you, Lord Jesus, do your work in these glorious last words of this book to make us more what you want us to be. And that's our prayer in your holy name. Amen. You can be seated. We've come a long way, friends. Our first message in the Gospel according to Matthew was in December 2015 as part of the Christmas series that year. We've taken a few breaks along the way, but here we are, a little more than three years later, arriving at the end of a book that I have to say I love more now than I did when we started. This is, I actually think, the 91st message you will have heard from the Matthew series. And as far as this series goes, we've reached the end. Now, coming to the end, what do you expect? You expect final words that matter greatly, don't you? I mean, after 91, you ought to have something worth, you know, what? this ought to be good to wrap up, right? You expect last words that are going to stick with you, that, that should wrap it up, that should, you should get commands and, and comfort to carry you on after you close this book. And guess what? That's exactly what we get here in the final verses of Matthew 28. So join me. We're going to take a final look at this gospel for this series. And believe me, that doesn't mean we'll never come back to Matthew again. We'll teach from it from different topics and points. But uh, today we finished the series and uh, we'll find four points. If you're a note taker, get ready to write down four things that will uh, come from this passage. We're looking at the great commission of our Lord Jesus. So you all ready? You excited about this? Be, be done with Matthew? What do you think? Yeah, some yeses, some well. Yeah. Point number one. Worship. Don't waver. Point number one. Worship, comma, don't waver. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, the vast majority of the gospel, according to Matthew, occurs in the northern region of Israel in the part called Galilee. 
it would be Reno to our Las Vegas, if you're thinking along those lines, except it wasn't the capital. Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth. I know Carson City's the capital, by the way. I'm just saying it's not the area. Jesus grew up in the northern region. He grew up in Nazareth, a small town in Galilee. He, he did most of his ministry out of Capernaum, uh, which is, again, is a town in Galilee. He delivered the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Galilee. And all the stuff that we're seeing from chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, 13, really are all happening in Galilee. Most of Matthew's gospel is there. And after his resurrection, if you remember last week, if you were here last week, if you heard last week, Jesus told the women to tell his disciples that they would see him in Galilee. So as we come to the end of the gospel according to Matthew, we find ourselves coming back where we started now, when last we saw Jesus in this gospel, when we studied verses 1 through 15, it was Resurrection Sunday. And Matthew doesn't give us any of the stories of what Jesus did in, Judah after, or in Judea after his resurrection. Matthew doesn't tell us about the two disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You have to go to Luke for that. Matthew doesn't tell us about Jesus meeting the 11 faithful in the upper room or that really neat conversation Jesus had between himself and Thomas. Those occur in the gospel according to John. Instead, Matthew leaps from the day of Jesus' resurrection, that Sunday, to a day that we would probably need to calculate is around a month later, probably 25 to 30 days later. And here on a mountain in Galilee, Jesus has arranged a meeting between himself and his disciples. On this day, followers of Jesus, I believe in a large group actually, are going to have the opportunity to meet and hear from the risen Lord Jesus. And my imagination can't help but wonder, I wonder if this was the same place where the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. Wouldn't this be fitting? I don't know if it happened or not, but still. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Paul talks about Jesus appearing after his resurrection to a group of more than 500 believers at one time. He said a lot of those folks are still alive, so you can go check their stories if you want to. My guess is that this meeting on the mountainside here in Matthew chapter 28 is the same meeting of Jesus with 500 others that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, to be clear, in case you're confused, this mountainside meeting is not the one that Eric read to us earlier this morning from Acts chapter 1. That was at the Mount of Olives where Jesus blessed his disciples and then was caught up into heaven where he is now alive awaiting the day of his return. Um, that day uh, would, would have occurred probably 10 days after what we're reading today. Now, Matthew tells us something that I think you ought to find fascinating about this encounter. There are two things that happened, two very different things that happened when this group saw Jesus in Galilee. Most immediately worshiped Jesus, but some doubted. Let's start with the many who worshiped. 
many, upon seeing Jesus on this mountain, fell to their knees or bowed down to the ground. They took an action to physically lower themselves before Jesus to show that they acknowledged Jesus to be divine, God in the flesh. They show by their actions that Jesus is their superior. They are his servants. Now, we saw last week that this act, that worshiping Jesus, is only appropriate if Jesus is indeed God. The Bible's clear. We are to have no other gods and it is a massive sin against God to worship anyone or anything other than the God who made you. But when you do experience the presence of God, when you understand that you have seen something of the glory of the Lord of all, it is not only appropriate that you worship, it is our only right response to the glory of God. People who experience the revelation of God rightly respond by taking action to honor God. They worship. Think about Revelation 4, the elders around the throne of God. When they get a glimpse of his glory and hear of his holiness, what do they do? They worship. They bow down. They show by acts of submission and homage that they are under the authority of God. This is natural for the redeemed. This is right. This is good. This is fulfilling. This is satisfying to the soul. Remember, God created us for himself. God shaped us in his image. Our purpose, your purpose as a human being, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when we do that for which we have been made, when we worship God, God fills the redeemed soul with joy. Nothing can ever fill the human soul like fulfilling the purpose for which you were made. There is no greater privilege. There is no greater privilege that you and I could ever experience than to actually honor and see and magnify the glory of God. So here... Disciples on the mountain bow before Jesus. They worship God. And friends, this is absolutely right. Now, were Jesus not God, he should have stopped them. Right? That Jesus willingly receives that worship, tells us that Jesus is clearly identifying himself as our God. And thus it is right for believers back then and today to worship Jesus. But Matthew also tells us some doubted. The word for doubt there is a kind of interesting word. It has to do with wavering between two opinions or two positions on something. 
For some reason, some of those at that mountain, at least at the beginning of this little narrative at the end, are unsure. They're uncertain. Now, why were some in this group doubting? We don't know. Perhaps it's something as simple as the fact that Many of these people of this group, I think it's a large group, many of these people are for the first time getting a chance to lay eyes on the risen Lord Jesus. He hasn't even spoken to this group yet. They could be at a distance among a crowd of over 500. It's possible that some of them who are doubting really aren't even sure that they are physically yet recognizing that this is Jesus back from the dead. We don't know exactly why some doubted initially. But what do we do with that information? I believe that this bit of data should give you and me confidence in Matthew's honesty. Think about it for a second. If you were making up a story about the resurrected Lord Jesus, if you were, if you were spooling out some fiction, would you have included the doubt of anybody? No. You would do everything in your power to make things look as shiny and good as you possibly could make them look. And the fact that Matthew includes here even a moment of doubt in the minds of some in this crowd, that is evidence that Matthew is telling us a true story. And Matthew is confident that temporary doubts like this do not cast any shadow on the truth of the fact that Jesus is alive. And of course, this initial doubt does help us make a very nice opening application point, doesn't it? Worship, don't waver. The message of this gospel is that Jesus is alive. Matthew knew it. All the disciples learned it. Eventually, every one of us here will know it too. And right now, you have the opportunity to make a choice. Will you believe in Jesus? Or will you waver back and forth between two views? Maybe I do, maybe I don't, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Pray. Pray that God would help you put away your doubts. Because the right response is to worship Jesus. Because he is God. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He is alive today. He is worthy of our all. Worship Jesus. Don't waver. Second point. Yield to Jesus' authority. You don't like spelling the word yield. You can say bow to or submit to. Yield to Jesus' authority. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, well, this is worth underlining, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus walks up to this group to speak to this crowd. I think if anybody doubted him from a distance, they are not, by the time he is finished, going to doubt him anymore. They're going to believe. 
And here we have a section that are, is the final words of Jesus that Matthew records. And Jesus speaks here three things we're going to see in the next three points. We're going to see him speak a claim, and we're going to speak him speak a commission, and we're going to give, here see him give a comfort. So let's look at the claim to authority. In what Jesus will say to the disciples that's coming, right? You guys know the Great Commission, most of you already, right? In what Jesus is about to say, he's going to give a significant command. Wouldn't you agree? It's a big command to the church. And the commission Jesus is going to give is going to be a command of Jesus that will be opposed by governmental leaders around the globe for millennia. The command that he's going to give is costly to obey. The command that he's going to give is difficult to fulfill. And so it makes sense that Jesus would, before giving the commission, remind you and me that he has the authority to give it. Now note here, Jesus claims, well, you tell me. I want to be sure you're awake. What authority does he claim? How much does Jesus claim? That's an important word, y'all. Does Jesus mean all here? Really all? There are times, right? There are times you can see the word all, and it, you know, it doesn't mean as much all as all it can be all. Does Jesus mean all here? Well, he clarifies for us, doesn't he? See, the Bible's never unclear about who the all is if you will watch the context. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is making sure you understand he just staked claim to authority over everything on planet earth and in all space beyond. I consider that to be fairly all-encompassing. Or, look at it this way, Jesus claimed authority over the place where man lives and over heaven, the place where the throne of God is. Physical, spiritual. Either way, Jesus is God. He is God over the universe. He is God the Son. He has always had the right to all authority, hasn't he? Was there ever a time Jesus lacked in authority? In Matthew 7, 29, Jesus said, they says that the people were amazed that Jesus taught with authority at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that? This guy's got authority. They saw it. In Matthew 9, 6, Jesus declared himself to have the authority to forgive sins. That's authority only God has. In Matthew 10, 1, Jesus gave the disciples authority to cast out demons. So Jesus claiming that he has authority over heaven and on earth really should not shock you, should it? But it does feel like something's changed here, doesn't it? Jesus walked through his earthly ministry. But as he walked through that ministry, Jesus voluntarily chose not to exercise all of his authority. But now... After Jesus has risen from the grave, Jesus is claiming his authority with absolute clarity. Jesus, upon the completion of his ministry, upon the completion of his sacrifice and his resurrection, Jesus says he has the authority of God in an absolute sense. <laughs> Jesus is glorified 
with the glory that he shared with God the Father from the beginning, just as Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 5. I think Paul gives us a good picture of this because Paul summarizes Jesus voluntarily letting go of exercising his authority at his incarnation only to take it up again, to receive it again, if you will, after his resurrection. You know where we would find that? Philippians chapter 2, very familiar passage. Philippians 2, 5 begins, Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is contextually Paul saying, Y'all need to think like Jesus who laid down his rights for the good of others as you lay down your lives for the good of others here in the body. But then he talks about Jesus and he describes what Jesus did. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, very nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't grab at or try to rip, you know, rip away from anything or take hold of authority as God. He didn't even cling to his own rights. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Doesn't that sound like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? So Jesus humbled himself and lowered himself to become truly human in his incarnation. He lived as a man to accomplish his mission and he chose not to exercise authority that he had. But once that mission was completed, once Jesus atoned for the sins of everyone God's ever going to save, Jesus took up again the mantle of the authority of God that has been his from eternity past and will be his for eternity future. God the Father gave to Jesus, God the Son, that which already rightly belonged to Jesus. The Father gave to the Son authority over all creation. Now, this puts you and me in an interesting position. And I want you to think about it this way. Jesus' words here in verse 18 are highly significant. Jesus claims all authority. And that means that Jesus is claiming that he has authority over you. Do you hear that? He is your rightful king. He is your Lord. Jesus owns you. What will you do with that knowledge? I would suggest to you that you will either fight it or submit to it. You'll either push back against it or yield to it. 
and how you choose to respond to Jesus' claim of authority over you will ultimately be the evidence of whether or not you have been reconciled to Jesus. Get under his authority and faith, and you're saved, right? Refuse him, and you prove that you never were saved. Submit to Jesus and receive life. Rebel against him and earn eternal death. Hear me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the authority over all. Jesus has every right to tell you what to do, what to think, where to go, how to live, how to identify. Jesus claims the right of ownership over every inch of the cosmos, and that includes every inch of you. And the good news here, friends, is that the same Jesus who claims that is good. Yes, he calls you to submit to him, but remember his call, his call is also, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and receive life. Jesus is our only source of joy that could last forever. Jesus is not a dark-hearted dictator who pleasures in your pain. Jesus is the good and kind Savior who called us to come to him and find rest and life and peace and joy and forgiveness. Getting under the authority of Jesus is the only way you and I will ever do what we were created to do because we were created for the glory of God. So I do, I urge you, I plead with you, yield to the authority of Jesus. Here, this morning, this moment, tell Jesus yes. Tell Jesus, you're my master. I'm not. Tell Jesus you submit to his leadership. Acknowledge to Jesus that you do not own yourself. Admit that you have no rights that are not gifted to you from him. Bow to him and you will be bowing to a good and loving Lord. Jesus claimed authority. I feel that's fairly established, don't you? Let's see the commission. Point number three. Man, what kind of point would I give you for the Great Commission? Two words. Make disciples. Make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here we see a very important word. Therefore. Therefore. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, you and I have a command to fulfill. Our Lord, our Master, our King, our Savior is telling us something. He orders us to do. What is Jesus' command? The command in this verse is the two-word phrase, make disciples. That's the command. Jesus looks out over that mountainside gathering. I think it was 11 faithful disciples plus a group of 500 
faithful followers. It was men. I think it was women. I think it was people whose names you know from the Bible, and it's people who you will only meet in heaven. It was the fledgling church getting ready to take off. It was about to receive the Holy Spirit. It was about to spread over the globe. And Jesus looked at those followers as a group, and he said to them, make disciples. The word disciple is a word that means a follower. That's what it literally means. A disciple is a person who learns from a teacher and walks in that teacher's ways, in his footsteps, if you will. A disciple is a person who follows somebody around, spends time with them, learns from them, and then imitates them. Jesus is therefore telling his followers to, under his authority, help others all over the world to become genuine, life-changed, devoted followers of Jesus. That was the job of the church in the first century, and in case you don't know, it's the job of the church in the 21st century too. Whom are we to make disciples? Make disciples of whom? Who does he say? All nations. You know what he's not doing there? He's not making any distinction between people groups, is he? All of them. There's no distinction between people group, ethnicity, nationality. We are to make disciples, first century especially, Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans. We are to make disciples of all nations. Every skin color, every nation, every language, every social class is to be brought into the family of God. And every person, regardless of their past, regardless of their color, regardless of what social category they think they fit into, they are to take off those labels. You don't stop being who you are, but that label cannot be your ultimate identifying label anymore. You are made into something new. You are made into a new creation. You are made into a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So no matter where you come from, who you've been, you first say, disciple of the Lord Jesus. That's what I am. And how do we do that? How do we make disciples? Jesus shows us with three participles. You make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, many people assume that the word go, by the way, is the command in this verse because it comes first in English. And go is part of the command. You cannot obey this command without going. But in the original, you would read it like, going, make disciples. As we go, by going, we make disciples. So how do you fulfill that part of making disciples? You want to guess? You go. That's how you do it. Not so complicated, is it? For some of you, going may be going throughout your day-to-day. A mom going about the business of teaching little ones at home is going and making disciples if she brings gospel and obedience to the word of God to bear. I wish that everybody appreciated that more. If a mom is pouring gospel into her children, she is going and making disciples. A person who witnesses and comforts a hurting co-worker is going into the workplace to make disciples. A Christian who intentionally spends time with a non-Christian friend in order to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ is going for the sake of the gospel. Right? You can go 
Look at, really, stop. Off my notes, completely off script here. Stop, look at your life, and admit the fact that no matter where you are, you can go and make disciples. And you should be. But, let's not allow what Travis just said to lift off of our shoulders the burden of going to the nations. Going is not merely the everyday to every everyday day to day. It can and certainly does include more. When Jesus looked at this group on the mountainside, was he telling them just wander around in your day to day? No. In Acts chapter 1, Luke records a very similar teaching from Jesus just before he ascends into heaven. And Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're going everywhere. Carry the gospel to the darkest corners of the globe to bring the gospel to the people God has chosen. He's going to say, go find them with the gospel and help them become disciples. And that mission, taking the gospel into the nations, that is also still the mission of the church. So part of going is also really going a long way, too. Going involves getting on an airplane and taking the gospel to people who speak other languages. You all know anybody who gets on an airplane and takes the gospel to people who speak other languages? Yeah, you do. And that's good, and they're going. Going involves getting in a van and taking the gospel to a Native American reservation. Going involves praying for missionaries. Going involves giving of your resources to support missionaries. In our church, Matt and Amy Kuntz are a family that we financially support. For three years, Matt and Amy and their children have been living in Ecuador, and they've been taking the gospel into the jungle. How cool is that, by the way? Does that not just rock? And you know what Matt gets to do? He doesn't just go to the jungle and preach gospel in the bush or whatever. He also is working with a group called Reaching and Teaching to actually set up seminary-level training for native Ecuadorian pastors so they can take a rightly handled, rightly interpreted word of God with them all over that country. They're doing work to start new churches they, friends, are going. They are going to make disciples. And you know what? You and I go with Matt and Amy when we support them. But, but, if some of you want, you can actually go to Ecuador and help them. You know they would welcome that? If you wanted to go help Matt trek into the jungle and teach gospel stuff to people who need to hear it, there are ways you could help. You could go. Now, could all of you go? Well, first of all, not at once. <laughs> and some of you don't have the health to go. But you know what? Some of you do. Wouldn't that be cool? Go make disciples. Some of you could go and stay. That would be godly and right, wouldn't it? Church, wouldn't you love to know that somebody from here said, we're going too? That'd be good. Jesus also said we make disciples how? We, go, we do it by going and by baptizing people into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That constitutes, in my mind, the front end of missions and evangelism. To baptize, what does it mean? In a strict sense, baptizing means to participate in a ceremonial act where a person 
who professes faith in the Lord Jesus is immersed, lowered under the water, and raised up out of that water again. And the point of doing that is to give that person a way in obedience to Jesus to publicly declare their faith in the Lord Jesus. The visual image of that ceremony is you signify the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and it signifies the death of that person in Christ, and they're being raised up to walk in new life with Jesus. We got to do that just a week ago, right? That was cool. If you haven't seen the pictures, look around, you'll find them. Um, and here at PRC, just so you know, as a church, who we are, we only baptize those who are already professing believers. We do not baptize anyone who has not yet come to personal faith in Jesus. And we only baptize by immersion. We don't sprinkle or pour water over people to baptize them. We, we do not believe, by the way, that baptism has any sort of influence on your salvation. Baptism doesn't make you more saved or less saved, and it does not save you. It doesn't wash anything off of you. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And no ceremony adds to your salvation. But we do at PRC require baptism for membership in the church. So by the way, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have never obeyed his command to be baptized, let us know. We would be happy to set up a time for you to be baptized as a believer. And if you've got questions about baptism, what it means, why I say what, it, what I'm saying about it, come talk to me. I would be happy to talk to you about our understanding of the command to be baptized. But with all that said, I don't think Jesus here is only speaking about baptism as the ceremony, as a standalone ceremony. The early church understood that baptism was connecting with both salvation, not that they thought it saved you, but baptism was the immediate follow-up to someone saying, I've been saved, but it was also tied to entering into the community of believers as part of the local church. So to make disciples by baptizing includes evangelism, and I would suggest even membership in the local church as part of the command. Evangelism is included, I'm sure, because Jesus is not telling the followers, hey, just go over the world and dunk people whether they believe or not. That's not what he's saying. And by the way, with that, I'm not making any snide comments about our Presbyterian friends who, in, who interpret the command to baptize differently than we do here. I'm not being silly with that. I'm saying that Jesus was not saying, just get people in the water and that's all you need. Jesus was clearly commanding Christians to carry the gospel to people, and when people respond to that gospel in faith, new believers are supposed to be baptized. And all Bible-believing Christians would agree with that. And then, once a person has been baptized uh, by, you know, as, as, in obedience to the command as a declaration that they are in the family of God, then they are immediately to be connected to the local church. That is true of all of the scriptures. Baptism has, throughout the centuries, been understood as the front door to the church. A person who places his or her faith in Jesus then announces their intention to follow Jesus in their life through baptism. And then the next step would be to be counted as a part of a local body of believers, to be counted as a member of the local church. So going and making disciples through baptizing, I believe, is to take people the gospel, to see them come to faith in Christ, and do everything you can to see them begin their fellowship with the local church. But that's not all Jesus commands. The Lord also told his followers to make disciples by teaching them to observe 
most of the things he said. Isn't that what it says? No? There's another all. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. You know what that means? That means making disciples includes what you and I think of when we think about discipleship. Because when you think about discipleship, what do you think about? Learning to grow, learning to obey, right? It includes walking with people in their lives. It includes teaching people to obey Jesus. Making disciples includes teaching people what the Bible says. Wouldn't you agree with that? You need to know what the Bible says. Making disciples includes teaching people how to read and understand the Bible for themselves. Making disciples includes teaching people to develop patterns of obedience to the Word of God. It, it, it involves teaching people how to repent of sin. It involves teaching people how to grow to maturity. It involves teaching husbands how to love their wives and wives how to love their husbands to the glory of God. The task of making disciples cannot be evangelism alone. The fulfillment of the Great Commission has never been missions slash evangelism alone. It must include training people to follow the Word of God. Yes, it's good to take anybody the gospel, but to drop the gospel on somebody and then leave them disconnected from the local church without help to walk in obedience is not fulfilling the Great Commission. And Jesus calls you and me, church, to make disciples. How does he do it? Reviewing three steps. We go. Finding where people are who do not know Jesus. Do you know where to find people who are who don't know Jesus? Do you know how to do that? Then go. We baptize, meaning we evangelize and we help people declare their faith and we help them to connect to the local church. And we teach we train people to know and to obey the word of God for the glory of Christ. So Christian, start asking yourself, if you haven't already been doing so, where do I, where do you participate in this process? Are you obeying Jesus' call? Are you speaking with people who don't know the gospel or who are not yet believers? By the way, do you even know a non-Christian? If not, how can you start? Are you sharing a clear message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ? If not, how do we help you get started? Do you need to better know the gospel? If so, please come talk with me. I'll spend time with you and help you. Or do you just need to start obeying? Because that could be it, couldn't it? And we're commanded to train people to obey all the commands of Jesus. Let me ask you this. Are you participating in that? Are you learning to obey the commands of Jesus yourself? Where and how? Whom are you investing in? Are you teaching anybody to obey? Whom are you helping to obey? So what we've seen so far is Jesus' command, right? We've seen his commission. It was just a moment ago that it hit my head that that was alliterated. I did not mean to do that. We also see his comfort. The mission is huge. The mission feels, does that mission not feel bigger than you? If I said, Russ, go make disciples of the globe, does that not feel bigger than you? Yes. Yeah, it does. That's why as we wrap up, we get the comfort the Savior offers us too. So fourth point, take comfort in Christ's presence. 
Take comfort in Christ's presence. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One final behold, one final call to man, take note of this. The mission is huge. We are to go about changing the world under Jesus' authority. Is that not our mission? And the good news is, as we go, we will never, no, not ever be alone. Jesus is with us to the very end. Until Jesus returns physically to this earth, he still tells the church he's going to be right here with us. Now, this, by the way, is a beautiful reminder of the very beginning of the gospel. I, I, I can't not show this to you. Think back with me to the birth narrative, right? You all know the Christmas story, Matthew 1. I want you to listen to what the angel said about Jesus in Matthew 1, 23, as he quoted the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what are they going to call his name? Emmanuel. Remember that? And then Matthew gives us in parentheses what it means, which means what? God with us. All the way at the front book into this book, the one who's coming is going to is promised to be God with us. And here, as Jesus wraps up the mission in Matthew, he promises us that yes, indeed, Jesus is truly from now to the end of the age, God with us. Now, we'd have to read the book of Acts to see how God sends the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son to fill every single believer and be with every single believer. We would have to read the letter to the Hebrews to think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. By the way, making intercession for many, just as God promised us in Isaiah 53, 12. But we need go no further than this verse to understand that Jesus is never, ever, ever going to leave you to perform this global task on your own. The one who has authority over all the universe, the one who died for our sins, the one who conquered death, he is the one who will be God with us, right here with us until the moment the mission is complete. So take comfort, Christians, in Christ's presence. And with that comforting promise the gospel according to Matthew comes to a close are you wavering in your thoughts about Jesus believe turn from sin and believe run to Jesus entrust your soul to Jesus and be saved are you a follower of Jesus then worship him he's God in the flesh he's the fulfillment of the promises that God made from before the dawn of time. He's the only hope for anybody to be saved. He has all the authority in heaven and on earth. And you and I are to bow to that authority, yield to that authority, obey Jesus, and you're going to find joy and fulfillment in obedience. Obey Jesus' authority by fulfilling the Great Commission. Take the gospel to others in your house. 
across the street, around the world. Help others come to faith, connect to the church, and commit themselves to obedience. Help them to become true disciples. Make disciples even as you remain committed to being a true disciple. And when it's all coming down and when you feel like, oh my goodness, all that stuff you just laid on me is too big for me. When the world seems too dark for the church to win. Remember the promise of the Savior. He is God with us. He has all authority. He conquered death and hell itself. And he told us he will be with us to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, God, you're good. This message is good. This call is good. And here we are. And there is a burden on us. This is heavy. Our prayer, Lord, is this. Take our lives, our feeble lives, our ransomed lives, and do with them whatever you will. Lord God, be magnified. Lord, that you would save souls. I would pray that you would redeem sinners. I would pray that you would raise up missionaries and do it all for your glory. Whatever we need, God, bring, it, bring us to it. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.